You're listening to Threshold Radio with Sam Ronto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp. Demons, shadow people, forbidden archaeology, haunted locations, haunted world. You can argue about Roswell all you want to, but something happened today. We're just collecting the data is we don't need to debate out there. Government? Is it We're dealing with something genuine. This isn't make believe. Thresholds into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Jeff Mudgett. Mike Clean's going to be talking with John Stevenson about a whole bunch of stuff. You're not going to want to miss this one. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds Radio. Right now on the phone with us is my good friend, Jeff Mudgett, author of Bloodstains, which is an amazing book about H.H. Holmes. How are you doing today, Jeff? Hey, John, good to hear from you, and uh, I tell you what, I've been looking forward to being on your show for uh, a couple of weeks now, and uh, it's always an honor. So what's, uh, here, there's some good news about the H.H. Holmes and the Jack the Ripper connection. Well, I tell you what, I, I don't like to uh, overstate the uh, the Ripper part of the story so much, because as you and I have talked before, the Ripper part of the story is so small compared to the total home story and what he did here in the States. But the way it's such a focus of attention around the world and for the last hundred years, um, I'm sticking with it. What we're doing right now is we're uh, um, waiting for the final conclusion on the comparison between the Jack the Ripper letter handwritings and the notes that Holmes did while he was in prison awaiting execution. Um, We've already had two experts state their professional eye that the handwriting is the same. We had a a scientific company give us a 98% number on the similarity of the uh, style, but they came back to us with the comment that they had to reprogram their computer to run the cursive, which is the the style of handwriting, which was at the turn of the century, through the computer, and we're waiting for their conclusions now on that, which may be another two or three months off. And, And as I wrote on my Facebook page today, I told all my... All my followers, hey, give us a little, be patient with us. Give us some time. It's been 123 years, two or three more months um, to get it done right. It's just something we all can uh, give to the project. Well, it actually does look like, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, too. It, it really does look like the writing's the same. The experts got to determine that. But, you know, between you and I, to us, it looks the same. You know, and, unless you're a, uh, a naysayer, John, when you put the handwriting up, one next to the other. There's no doubt. I mean, it's obviously the same hand. It's got some time in between it. It's three or four years at least 
between when he wrote the one and when he wrote the other. But there's just, uh, you know, unless a man was sitting there trying to duplicate it, which he couldn't have done in prison with the Ripper letters in London, um, you and I both, we've, as, we, as you say, we've talked about it. It's obviously the same hand. Yeah, I would say, oh, plus handwriting, too. I mean, my gosh, write your name a couple times in a row, then do it again the next day, and you'll see every one of them is different. A little bit. And, and, and plus, why would Holmes have wanted to duplicate the Ripper hand letters when he's waiting to be hung anyway? I, I, I don't quite, uh, no one's explained that uh, that. Uh, that uh, opinion to well, me there, yet, but, uh, there's more any, to anyway, it than that too gonna... because uh the, the styles i mean hh uh, holmes and jack the ripper their styles of murder so to speak and plus the fact that hh holmes was in england at that time i mean give me a break the handwriting's the same he was in that place and he was known for that so you know to, to me that's like an open and shut case well, it's um, the handwriting is important not only for the similarity of the hand, but also he could not have written those two letters, John, and not been in London. The way the mail was delivered overseas back then, and the dates involved on the two on the two letters, with the knowledge that's uh, that's uh, communicated in them, it proves he was in Whitechapel at the relevant time, which is what so many of the Ripperologists have denied over the years about Holmes being an actual suspect. So once we establish that the handwriting is the same, we have proven that he was there. Now, as you and I talked about before, it doesn't prove he had the scalpel in his hand, but we start realizing that when this evidence starts piling up, him showing interest in being and in the victims that were there, knowledge of the victims that were there when the when the media didn't get that information from the investigators for quite a while. Um, after a while, you start to have to scratch your head and start, um, you know, admitting that he is the number one suspect, and all this evidence is starting to pile up. Looks that way. Well, the real question is actually here for you, Jeff, is if this pans out and he is Jack the Ripper, which it looks like. The real question is, how do you feel, great-great-grandson of Jack the Ripper? Well, um, I, to tell you the truth, it, it, the, being Jack the Ripper is a very small part of the home story. What he did in Chicago, Detroit, New York, um, Fort Worth, San Francisco was far, far worse than the... Um, than the terrible things that happened in London. Right. Well, I just mean how well-known, you know, the Jack the Ripper thing is. That's, you know, that's a huge part of history. Well, and that's one of the things uh, we're using that for, um, John. It gives us the opportunity to start telling the rest of the world the home story, which um, the Ripper, you know, is, is, is like a spotlight uh, on the issue. And uh, I, I can't wait for um, that uh, exposure to come. That's true. Oh, not to downplay the H.H. Holmes either, because, I mean, my gosh, that that in itself is absolutely amazing, too. It's just the Jack the Ripper thing is something we've all known since we were kids, actually. And you know what, John? Uh, there, uh, a new movie came out this week, um, one of the studios in Hollywood. I just was reading The Hollywood Reporter. Last week, another author put forth another suspect about who he thought Jack the Ripper was. And then we found out that the BBC is doing a television series in Dublin about their theory of who Jack the Ripper was. So it doesn't ever seem to stop. I, I kind of like to shut the door on it, to tell you the truth, and I think we're very close to doing it. Yeah, well, like I say, it's getting a lot of publicity lately, and it might be in due part because of your book. I mean, 
the, the subject is coming out quite a bit more than it has lately, and your book is uh, right, seems to be right in the forefront of that. Well, um, you know, as, as we talked, uh, uh, when I first um, sent the manuscript to New York, I had a large publisher willing to, to uh, do the book for me. And uh, if I took the chapter out about Holmes being Jack the Ripper, they refused to believe that, and they thought it was uh, spacey. Oh, really? Um, I refused that. I refused that, and I've done it on my own. This is independently published, so I. That's another um, thing I'm eager about to be able to walk up to their doors one day and point my finger at them and say, "You should have uh, looked at it a little more closely." They wanted you to take that out. You you think that would be a thing that would sell more books, actually? Well, they just, uh, I guess they uh, they didn't think that it would sell. Uh, they thought it was unbelievable. And I'm just, like I say, I'm, I'm eager to keep the uh, the evidence coming and uh, to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt here in the next year or so. That sounds good. So you're waiting for more analysis on the handwriting. You said then there's a, they're, they're doing more tests on that? Absolutely. They're reprogramming their computers, uh, the program, and um, to, to uh, like I say, to uh, be able to match curses instead of the style we use now. But just to tell you, every day we have something new come in now that the uh, that people are realizing that we're kind of a center of attention for the Ripper story. Now, we had a, a uh, letter delivered to us from the Gilmington Historical Society, which was from Holmes to his lawyer when he was in prison, a confidential letter, client attorney-client privilege, um, explaining to his lawyer that while he was in London, he was always irritated because he could never find the New York Herald, his favorite newspaper, to read. Little things like that come in every day now. And then we're, when we when we go back and recheck the documents with this knowledge in our minds now, things that we passed over before are starting to emerge, and it's uh, it's getting to be a lot of fun. That's cool. Before we get too much farther, so I, before I forget, you got a book signing coming up here in Chicago, don't you? John, we're at the, the Bookseller, one of the great book, uh, independent bookstores in Chicago. It's a wine cellar and a, and a bookstore all in one. There's, it's uh, the Author's Night um, this Wednesday with a couple of other um, two great authors, one uh, a reporter for the Tribune. And um, we're going to stand up and do a little reading from each of our books in, in front of the crowd. And um, I'm hoping some of your listeners can show up. It'll be at 7 o'clock at the Bookseller. Okay, and that's on what day? That's Wednesday. Let's see, what day is Wednesday? Do you have a calendar in front of you? Uh, nothing like being prepared when we're on air, right? <laughs> I've, got, I've got one. Hold, hold on a second. Wednesday the 15th? Got... Is it the Wednesday coming up next it's, Wednesday? It's the 15th. Okay, Wednesday, Wednesday the 15th. So if, if everyone's in the area, come and meet Jeff yourself, and he'll sign a book for you. I, I would uh, I would love to. So anything else been going on? Any uh, more exciting news or anything? No, I'm doing interviews every day, and uh, the, I don't know if you saw the uh, piece that WGN-TV put on about um, about Holmes uh, potentially being the Ripper and uh, their... Um, their uh, inspection of the uh, basement at the post office in Inglewood. Did you, did you get a chance? Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, that piece that Pam Grimes did. I actually talked to Pam after that, and she said that was pretty cool. But she was telling me that her frustration with too many people in there with her because uh, they wanted to try to experience, but she said there were all kinds of people walking around behind them. Uh, Pam's a great reporter. Yeah, they had the, the entire administrative staff, I think, with them. 
I told Pam that uh, one day we should uh, go down there, um, maybe you and I, her and her film crew, and maybe uh, see if we can trigger something which uh, happened that I described in my book when I went down there by myself. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be great. I talked to Pam about that too. Suggested the same thing: just myself and you, her, and like one camera guy, and that's it. No entourage, no one else, just us to keep it small. And uh, if I can, uh, if, if what happened to me happens again, and I could describe it on film, I think it uh, with you there, with your knowledge of the paranormal, might be something which would raise a few eyes. Yeah, that would actually be pretty cool. I'm kind of. Uh... Looking forward to that. But like I, I had told you, uh, I think a few weeks ago or whatever, my uh, my mother has read your book. And after reading your book, and be it I'm an adult, you know that too. <laughs> after reading the book, my my mother forbid me to go in the basement with you. <laughs> well, that's a mother taking care of her uh, of her son. And uh, uh, when you haven't read my book yet, you've been into certain seg- segments of it. But uh, that uh, chapter I described... Uh, how the voice in my head wanted me to uh, hurt the man that was with me down there. And I described, you know, resisting that. And uh, I'm sure it would happen again if we went down with uh, just a few people. And um, and like I say, I, I know you, uh, the paranormal paranormal uh, profession uses the word trigger to uh, represent someone who may have a relationship spirit or entities that are there. And maybe we could bring them out. It would be interesting. I mean, considering that you're an actually you know, blood relative too. That uh, that's kind of uh, an important thing like that. If anything is going to trigger it, that's going to do it. I think so. And you know, and uh, what I remember, whether it was what I actually saw or whether it was what I felt having, you know, a seizure, an epileptic seizure. What I remember seeing were the faces of his victim emerging from the concrete walls and uh, seeing me and then fear. That would actually be going cool. Going back into the yeah. concrete. Yeah. It's not going to be on film that would emerge, but you might see it. And I think uh, if two of us saw it, it might uh, help our ability to uh, demonstrate that it was more than just too many drinks. Yeah. Well, I use infrared equipment too, which uh, is actually known to show ghosts you know so the theory goes plus i've actually caught some to prove that theory but uh, wgn will have normal cameras but my uh, infrared equipment might see things they don't see you know you were telling me something off air earlier that somebody had asked you a question that you thought was pretty interesting he had asked you uh if you could change it would you not want to be the relative of hh holmes if so you know how that you think that would change your life uh what is your answer to that you know if you could change it to where you really weren't you know related to him anymore would you, would you do it if you could yeah that that question came out today i was on an interview this morning and it was the uh, first time that i've ever been asked that and uh, he uh, he was uh, asked a lot of very sensitive questions but this one really uh, really uh, hit me in the gut and it was if i could snap my finger and remove everything about H.H. H. Holmes being my relative from my life, would I do it? And he, you know what, he made, I had to pause and think. I uh, hadn't had any prepared response to that, obviously. And what came out, and I, and I was hoping it wasn't over the top too much, but it was right out, of, right out of my head and heart, was that I explained to him in the book, when I go down into that basement of that post office, the moment I crawled down those steps, I I uh, was an atheist. I did not believe in God. I did not believe in spirits. I did not believe in the paranormal. 
I did not believe in apparitions. In the 20 minutes I was down there, that all changed. My, my entire outlook about all of those things, including my belief in God, changed because of what happened down there. So when I considered how to answer his question, I had to stop and think, would I want to be an atheist now instead of someone who believed in God because of what I saw? And I, so I told him, no, I would not snap my finger I would want my life to be just as it had been. I mean, it's an intriguing life. I think it's pretty cool. It's something like, I mean, just because, uh, you know, your great-great-grandfather was H.H. Holmes, it's nothing really bad. It's just everyone, we all have history. And I think it's, you know, it's a cool history because it's, it, it's just, I don't know how you'd put it. It's just an amazing history. I wouldn't change it if I could, if I was you either. And, you know, and it's like, you know, people tell me over and over now, nothing I did wrong. I did choice in the matter. Um, when, as we just, you, you and I discussed last time on your show, my family was dead set against me writing this book when I first started. And now they've come completely full circle and now support the book 100% because they see I get to get up on radio or TV TV and explain that even with this thing in our background, this monster, this most evil thing that ever lived, my family's good law-abiding citizens, two or three of them were war heroes, others are are successful, uh, doctors, um, everyone followed the rules and did the right things, and it shows. And I'd like the book to be able to be used to show people none of that stuff about what's in your background or who you're related to matters. The decisions you make about life and how you want to go that that are important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and your book's making a big impact, too. Uh, I guess telling you before, too, I've always got people ask me, I know, where do I get Jeff's book at, Bloodstains? Uh, people ask that a lot. I always send them to your website. Uh, why don't you give your website info right now again, Jeff, so we don't forget, too. If for people that want to get the books, where do you want them to go? Thanks, John. You know, and we're getting our sales are up high enough now to where you can just type in Bloodstains, one word, Bloodstains, on Google, and we're at the top of the page. Or you can type in my name or Herman Mudges, and we're at the top of the page. Or you can go to www.bloodstainsthebook, all one word, dot com. Or you can go to Amazon uh, Kindle, and we're selling the book there for $2.99 for people that are having a little hard time. And we even give them the program on our webpage about how to download straight from Amazon Kindle to their PC. They don't need an ebook, they don't need an Amazon Fire or iBook, any of those expensive. Uh, devices to read the book on the ebook. And $2.99, my gosh, you know, that even all of us were having financial difficulties now, but two ninety nine, you know, most of us can swing that. Well, that's why we did it. Um, we had a lot of people telling us we were selling it uh, too cheap, and I said, no. I said, a cup of coffee is good, and uh, I'd like people to be able to use the book maybe to uh, change the way they look at uh, life and uh, and uh, the history of man and the nature of man, and uh, I, I'm excited about that. And that this book's out, Jeff, have you had anybody, I've never asked you this before, but now that the book's out and everyone knows about your family and this, have you had anyone come forward and be like, well, my grandmother used to know this, or my aunt knew this, or my great-great-granddad knew this, you know, where people are relating stories to you that correspond, you know, something to do with H.H. Holmes? Great question, John. Every day I have someone now come forward about some relative they had that knew Holmes, was a victim of Holmes, was a relative of mine and homes on another side of the family tree. And every single one of them, John, all thankful that, the, that I wrote the book and, and uh, been happy to be able to explain their position in relationship to this monster, too. So that, I enjoy that, like I say, every day. 
Well, that's pretty cool because that's what I was thinking because this book's out there and uh, it's a part of history. So as you start talking about it, there's going to be people out there that know sides of the story you don't even know because they actually had family members involved in it. Well, and you uh, you know, when he went to trial at the turn of the century and was supposedly hung and, and buried, um, the entire family, to get away from the stigma of that thing, moved to California and set up you know, on, on the coast. Uh, my grandfather uh, uh, worked for Pacific Gas and Electric for 50 years, and um, they all wanted to get away. And back then, you could do it. There was no internet. There was no television. Right. You know, there was radio. <laughs> but, but nobody was following these things, and nobody uh, passed, uh, passed it along the story, so they all got away with it. Well, now, that's not going to work. You had Larson come out with his great book, The Devil in the White City. You've got Leonardo DiCaprio, practicing right now to star as H.H. H. Holmes in the Warner Brothers' major motion picture um, of The Devil in the White City. This, this story is going to be told, and I wanted to do it you know, from my side of it rather than allow other people uh, describe Holmes and our family. Right. Well, who better to do it than an actual blood relative? Well, and, and uh, I tell you, what I wanted to do was allow a reader to get into the book take a ticket with me on this psychological journey. Because the book, the other books you can buy, you can buy, like I said, Larson's book or Schechter's book or any of the great books, the nonfiction pieces about Holmes, and you can read the facts of history. It's all pretty much regurgitated public domain stuff. My book is a psychological journey about waking up on your 40th birthday and finding out this monster was in you. And that's why I call the book Bloodstains. And waking up, you know, laughing with my brothers and cousins, you know, how guys would do on, on initially finding out, we don't care, we'll have a beer and we'll right. laugh it off. And then, and then this thing's starting to twist in your mind. Well, I know your how book is definitely twist. a uh, can't-put-down book. Like I say, I've, I haven't read it myself yet. I briefed through it, but I'm terrible. I just hate reading, but I'll have to get over that. But my aunt and my mother and all my friends that have read this, you know, say the book is just absolutely terrible, hideous, and not in a bad way, but they like, but I just can't put it down. <laughs> and that's the reoccurring theme I keep hearing. You know, it's an outrageously terrible book, but I love it and I can't stop reading it. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, for you know, I'm I'm not a, a famous author at all, but for for me to hear that it's a can't put down. I mean, that's got to be one of the greatest compliments, um, you know, I, I can have. But I tell you what, and, Jeff. Um, actually, my uh, my mother and my aunt are both huge book readers. I mean, they always have been, and my mom kind of enjoys this kind of stuff too. And she said, and I'm not lying. This is one of the best written books she's ever read in her life. And my aunt actually said the same thing. And that's an amazing compliment because that's just an, a normal person. And my mom enjoys books. And she said you did an amazing job writing this. Well, I tell you, thank you very much. That means a lot to me. And uh, please, please thank them both. Oh, I will. And like I say, I'm, I'm going to have to read this. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I, I've got so many amazing books here from all our guests. They always send me books. But uh, I've got an attention span problem. And I just have a heck of a time. I'm reading books. Well, I tell you, I tell you what, um, I tell you what, John. You, um, you have to read chapter 27, which is when we go to the post office and into the basement, and uh, the visions and voices emerge. You have to have that one almost memorized before we go back down with the cameras and infrared. <laughs> exactly, because i got to see why my mom says I'm not allowed to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty scary stuff, yeah. And uh, uh, it, it, it turns out for the good, and the book turns out for the good, but that chapter is, uh, 
uh, I got to tell you, I'm I'm going to go back down because there was a there was an article in Harper's about it was a great article and written in 1944 about this uh, this building and um, it said that this place was the place that God allowed evil to run amok and that if ever man was going to prove that the paranormal does exist, you know, the, not these silly ghost hunter TV shows and things. Right. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not referring to one in particular. I just kind of, that just kind of came out. Well, but a... if ever one, a place is going to prove that it does exist, it's going to be the basement on this post office. And, uh, I really want us to go totally prepared for, uh, what we might find. I'm excited. I mean, I, I, I've told you this before, actually, we've talked off air, but I've been to all kinds of famous places and I have got really excellent photos or videos, evidence from every place I go. I just got that knack. If it's haunted, I catch it. So I am just so psyched to go down there with you. Well, good. And uh, like I was saying, I, I have to, uh, I'm going to have to get, uh, my courage up because it was a terrifying event and I know it might even be worse going back the second time but I'm going to do it because like I say it's if we get the chance to prove something like that to man I mean what an honor to be a part of that team I I can't I can't wait and I'm looking forward to do it but we got to do it the right way and be totally prepared right and actually keep it kind of a secret and redo it so people don't show up out there Oh, so what else you got going on, Jeff? Anything? Uh, do you have any other uh, events going on? I know you just recently, where'd you have that talk at? Uh, you had, had a really good talk. What was it, last week or something you were telling me about? Oh, it, it was spectacular. The uh, medical school at the USC asked me to come out and discuss to their book club, their PhD candidates of medicine, pharmacy, um, psychology. Um, they had selected my book, they all read it, and they wanted me to come out and discuss in a Q&A with them psychological aspects of the book and my life, which, what an honor. USC is one of the most incredible institutions in the world. We showed up, and the room was full. I started my talking. My prepared statements was a little, were a little, um, they were off a little bit, and I finished I asked for questions. There was a pause in the room, and I was just about to let go with, well, thank you very much for having me here tonight. And then a question went up, and another, and another. And then we went for an hour and a half, just back and forth with these, the most maybe the most brilliant minds in America, asking about the psychological aspects of thinking this monster, you know, was a part of me when I wrote this book. And it was just fascinating stuff. Um, We have a tape of it coming out, and I'm going to put it on my Facebook page. And I would invite all of your listeners, if they get a chance to listen to it, it was, uh, uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I know you're talking about that. That was uh, that was quite an honor, actually, because those are some uh, intelligent people there. That's not your normal little ghost conference. These are really uh, intellectual people. No, and we started getting in. John, we started getting into discussions about how could God have allowed this thing to live or or to exist. What was the nature of man that would have allowed this thing to start off at birth, not being psychotic, not being sociopathic? just being evil, and maybe another species all in himself. And, and these doctors were discussing this, and it was just, i tell you what, I was just fascinated. That's actually, it sounds like it was a good talk. I know you were excited about it. In Nervous, you were talking with me weeks before this, telling me how excited you were, but yet nervous because you knew how intelligent all these people were. <laughs> I remember you saying that, but I know you were so psyched about it. it you, 
there's no doubt. I, I can't hang, you know, with these people and uh, as far as intellect, but uh, they were uh, very generous with me. And um, I tell you what, when it, when it was over, they came up and lined up for me to sign the book they had and, and discussed um, their favorite parts of the book. And I, I'll never forget it. It was, um, it was a great event. I don't think it'll ever happen again. That's good. Well, is there anything else you want to cover, Jeff? Anything coming up or any anything whatsoever you'd like to discuss yet? You know, we've got, uh, you, you mentioned the, uh, the reading um, next uh, week in Chicago. Um, after that, we go to, uh, I go back to Gilmington uh, in New Hampshire, you know, the place where Holmes was uh, born. And the uh, historical society there, we're going to, they're going to go let us go through all the archives again to make sure there's nothing we missed about Holmes and, and Ripper and all his documents, notes, and letters, which I'm very excited about. And then when we come back through Chicago, Ursula and Willie Atkins are going to put on a Holmes weekend, and we may be having a debate uh, between myself and, and John Borowski, the author of The Strange Case of H.H. H. Holmes, the great uh, film, film producer, too, from Hollywood, discussing... Um, the pros and cons of whether Holmes could actually have been Jack the Ripper on WGN. I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, that sounds neat. I'll definitely have to keep me informed on that one because that one I'm definitely going to show up to. That sounds like a great event. That's the end of March and the 1st of April. It's uh, it's the weekend there, and it's uh, I, I would uh, be disappointed if you didn't show up, John. I'll be there. Well, Jeff, as always, it was great talking with you, and uh, we'll talk to you again in the near future. Thank you very much, and uh, I want to thank all your listeners for uh, taking the time out to uh, hear me uh, discuss bloodstains and, and you're in my friendship. It's always it's always fun, and uh, I look forward to doing it again. Okay, take care now. All right, that was Jeff Mudgett. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Welcome back. With us right now is Michael Clean. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, John. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, as always. No problem. Just a little bit ago, during that last break, Mike and I were talking about that UFO sighting in Wales, which appears pretty genuine to me. I actually was quite impressed. Uh, what was your view on that one, Mike? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very shaky video, typical of these kinds of UFO videos. And I'm actually watching the clip right now, and it seems to be, just for our listeners, there's a line of flashing lights, but they're not flashing in any particular order. It's just kind of random. And now normally I don't trust people from Wales, <laughs> but this, <laughs> this video really sounded... Not to offend any of our Wales listeners. Yeah. Well, the the video it looks pretty legitimate, you know, from what I'm looking at. There there aren't very many explanations for what this could be. I actually kind of impressed with it too. I mean, the way the lights do. I had actually had somebody on our our Facebook page. I actually posted this video, and they said something about is anyone checking out the theory the pulsating lights might be a binary code, which hmm. is rather intriguing, actually. Well, that, that's actually a, a good feature that you pointed out there. The lights are definitely pulsating. It's not, it's not as though they, they don't look like a mechanical string of lights, if you understand. Yeah, they're the not angle. going like, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. They're, they're pulsating right, in random, random orders at random rates. 
And, but you can definitely tell there's like some, it, it's like a round or circular object though. You can see the, you know, as the lights go around, you can see the distant side and the close side. So it's it's not a helicopter. It's, you know, it's not a plane. It's moving it, extremely slow. Yeah, it's definitely not anything that I've ever seen in the sky. And I wonder uh, how long they were there taking a picture of this thing. I don't know. Whatever that video content was, I think they were saying that they filmed it. Well, you could actually hear the brothers kind of arguing in the background, the older brother thought the younger brother was crazy and then looked out the window and was like whoa <laughs> well it looks like when they zoom out of the video the lights are clustered much closer together you know as though they do outline some kind of craft you'd think something else would come up because if you noticed on that video there were homes below it too and it was pretty low to the ground yeah because what was it what was that i think it was like three in the morning or something if i remember right that showed on the actual tape i'm not looking at it now unless you still got it up there yeah i'm, I'm looking at it there's no time stamp on the video I thought I saw one. Maybe it wasn't. I, I was thinking it was like three in the morning, though. But I found oh. it quite intriguing. I posted it on a few places. And for those people who haven't seen it, you can see it on our Facebook page or go to our main page at uh, ufo-info.com. And I actually have it posted there, too. Yeah, and the, the video is only about eight minutes, so it's very quick. And it, it has the actual eyewitnesses talking about what they saw as well as the video. It, uh, say it, was, it was pretty interesting. I was impressed. I Generally, 99% of these don't impress me at all, but this one just comes across as actually quite legitimate. So if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking this one out. Well, it's, it's so easy to fake these things now, as we've seen a number of hoaxes have come up. So it's kind of hard to distinguish between the uh, the legitimate ones and the um, and the fake ones. Oh, here I'm just seeing right now, there actually is a timestamp on the early portion of the video. It says 3 a.m. January 3rd, See, 2012. How's, how's that for a memory, huh? <laughs> yeah, so... This happened about over a month ago, and I'm wondering why we're just hearing about this now. Oh, a lot of times like that. I mean, think about it. A normal person sees that and they film it. They don't know what to do with it. But if I recall that, I only watched it once. I think they were saying something about the authorities didn't want anything to do with it. Do you recall them saying that? So that could account for them just not having, didn't know what to do with it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure if you bring a UFO tape to the police, they're they're probably just going to tell you to... Uh, Oh, they're, you know, they're right on it. I mean, just like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they tell you to, to take your medication and go home. Exactly. Oh, another interesting video that you pointed out to me today, and uh, <laughs> definitely not paranormal, but quite hilarious, was that, that father having a little discipline with his daughter about Facebook. You, you want to talk oh, yeah. about the, that a little bit, Mike? <laughs> the the extreme, quote-unquote, extreme discipline video. It basically, this uh, man's daughter posted this video or uh, not a video like a just posted on her wall on Facebook complaining about her parents and she thought that her parents couldn't see it but for some reason they were able to so this man decided to make a video and he he read the letter uh, to the to the audience and afterwards he said okay here's my response to my daughter <laughs> he points the camera down at the ground at the laptop and he says oh here's your laptop that i spent all day yesterday working on and hundreds of dollars upgrading and here's a, my handgun filled with hollow points and just blows like six or seven holes in the thing you know that one he's like well, number seven he goes oh 
and that's from your mother. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, at first, when you first think about it, you think, wow, this is a really extreme response. But I mean, it sounds like the guy was at his wit's end, you know, with his daughter is just totally ungrateful for her situation. Well, that letter too. I mean, did you listen to that? That, you know, she was being a little, uh, I don't want to say anything, or we have to beep it out. A, a little witch, so to speak. She wasn't exactly being too uh, thoughtful of uh, her parents there. Now, I, I'm sure, um, and now she'll probably, you know, well, if this was in England, I mean, I'm sure the authorities probably right. would step in. Well, yeah, weapons are illegal in England. Yeah. The father would be in jail for life. For, for for shooting a laptop. <laughs> yeah. That was hilarious. So you know, actually one shot would have done the job, but eight was much cooler to watch. <laughs> I'm surprised that the the bullets actually didn't have a, a bigger effect on the laptop. Well, actually, I mean, there was nothing solid for the, those hollow points to explode on impact, but there was really nothing there for a laptop. It's just flimsy. It just shot right through it. I mean, but I can tell you as being a, a PC tech, you know, I am... Uh, one shot <laughs> would have sufficed. You bring that to me in the shop, I guarantee I'm not fixing that. <laughs> but I would love for someone to do that because I'd be like, uh, what happened to this? <laughs> you mean you can't just put duct tape over the hole? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's your display blew out, your motherboard. I mean. Wow. Uh, that, that girl's not going to be on Facebook anytime soon. No, not at all. And all all over not wanting to make the bed. Yeah, that she was complaining that she uh, was getting too many chores. Actually, her dad, his response, I, I thought was actually really good. Yeah. No, it's but you know this is this is the entitlement generation that they think that you can just sit around all day and not contribute at all. We just lost some of our listeners, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's too deep. That's too deep into philosophy for for this show. So what do you got for us this week, Mike? You got another top 10 list, you said? Yeah, I've got uh, a favorite of mine. Uh, this is the top 10 most haunted bars and pubs in Illinois. Oh, there you go. That's got to be a good one. Now, of course, we patronize many drinking establishments in the course of our travels. Some of us places. more than others, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But, okay, many of these pubs contain spirits of a different nature. So we're going to go through and, and find out which one is the most haunted in, in Illinois. Number 10, we have the Sober Duck, otherwise known as the Brew House, as it was formerly known, in Springfield, mm -hmm. Illinois. Now, here's what happened. Uh, on June 27th, 1968, a bartender at the Sober Duck Disco and Rock Club. How would you like to, to go hang out there? He committed suicide with a gunshot to the head. <laughs> That's because he had to work in that place with that name. <laughs> well, you know, it's the 60s. <laughs> so during life, his friends and co-workers called him Rudy. After his death, they blamed icy chills during the summer and flying shot glasses on his ghost. Now, one uh, waitress actually claimed that a disembodied head appeared and warned her of the club owner's impending death. The owner of the building actually died soon after, so they got pretty concerned about this. And the man who had leased the building for his club, he asked two priests to perform an exorcism. So in August 1979, they said the rites inside the sober duck and the disturbances stopped. The club's name was later changed to the brew house, but then it burnt down under mysterious circumstances in 1992. That's interesting. Where would you get a name, the sober duck, my gosh? I don't know. You know, a lot of these places have kind of interesting names. Well, I think a lot of them have alcohol involved Yeah, <laughs> in the naming process. <laughs> well, hey, you know, if you're going to own a, a pub or a bar, you better like drinking. Yeah, I guess. So, number nine is the Bucktown Pub in Chicago, Illinois. 
Now, this pub is believed to be haunted by a former owner named Wally who committed suicide in 1986. After the bar was purchased from his widow, the new owners made some adjustments to its interior, which, of course, as we know, always kind of disturbs spirits. Now, much to their surprise, bottles and even coasters and napkins were mysteriously rearranged during the night back to the way they had been when Wally was in charge. The jukebox turned turned on and off at will, and employees have reported seeing or hearing someone who vanished when they turned to greet this anonymous visitor. Now, number eight is Ethel's Party, otherwise known as Tito's on the Edge. Eth- Ethel's Party? That's actually the name <laughs> of the place? It was the name of the place. Or, Sorry, it's it is the name of the place. It is now Ethel's party. It used to be Tito's on the edge. Neither name makes any sense to me. No, Ethel's party by far is worse though. I'm sorry. <laughs> and if you're well, Ethel and you're having a party there, I'm still sorry. <laughs> this one is in Chicago, Illinois, and this actually is an interesting history because between 1908 and 1995, Coletta's funeral home uh, occupied the building. This is at the edge of Chinatown, and it catered to the the nearby Italian neighborhood. Now, according to Richard Crow, who's kind of our resident uh, ghost expert in Chicago, when the funeral home finally moved out and a bar moved in, many locals were weary of going there because of of its reputation. (laughs) You don't say. Now, even one of Tito's own bartenders refused to go into what was formerly the embalming room and the cold storage area in the basement. The building's new owners quickly realized it was haunted, They sighted a man dressed in a brown trench coat, a white, thick cloud, and even an extra band member who was seen on stage for a few moments before vanishing. So, of course, as we said earlier, Tito's on the Edge is now known as Ethel's Party, and there's still some strange activity there. that was actually a funeral home. Yeah, at one time it was. See, there's a real brainstorm, too. Take a funeral home and turn it into a bar. (laughs) You know, anything can be turned into a bar. Well, definitely. Just involve alcohol and wham, you're a bar. <laughs> well, yeah. All you need is a bar and uh, and and drinks. You don't even need um, uh, pumps or anything like that. Well, if you have if you have alcohol, they will come. I don't care what your <laughs> bar is in. Guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So number seven is from Peoria, Illinois. This was called the Dormitory, and it was formerly known as the Parkway Inn. This, this kind of has an interesting history as well. In the late 1940s, Bernie Shelton, a member of the infamous Shelton gang, had aspirations to become the leading crime boss in Peoria, uh, despite growing pressure from an alliance of St. Louis and Chicago gangsters. So we got a lot of history of... Of, of gangsterism in in the state, of course. Mm-hmm. Carl and Bernie Shelton, uh, both of them are brothers. They had a ten thousand dollar price on their heads. Carl was murdered in 1947 on July 26, 1948. As Bernie was leading leaving the Parkway Inn, uh, he was shot through the chest with a, a 351 Winchester rifle by an unidentified man hiding in the woods below St. Joseph's Cemetery. So he now some people think that he died there in the parking lot, but he actually died in the hospital. He wasn't dead on the spot then, huh? No, but that's where his ghost is seen. Now, since he's been since he died, the owners of the tavern report uh, lights turning on and off, sudden chills, items moving, and the feeling of someone breathing on their neck. Are any of these things so, documented? You know, like all these bar I'm kind of cutting your story off here, but I mean is anything documented if anyone taken videos or photos of any of these do you know no i'm sure it's a lot of these are just stories passed down you know from one one generation to the next although i believe that sober duck uh in springfield illinois that was quite a well-documented case i think that there might have been many um 
local newspaper articles about it. So it's kind of interesting to think, uh, last night I was watching the movie Unforgiven, and it's interesting to think that in the 1940s here in Illinois, there was this bounty that was put on these two gangsters' heads that obviously there was some someone was willing to collect on it. Well, they, and there always, was, yeah, there was always someone out to collect in the bounties. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. So number six is the old St. Andrew's Inn in Chicago, Illinois. Now, during the 1950s, this bar was owned and operated by Frank and Edna Giff. Frank had a legendary taste for vodka, and he had no reservations with sharing a few rounds with his patrons. His lifestyle, unfortunately, caught up with him, and he actually died uh, behind the bar at the age of 59. Uh, his wife sold the establishment to a Scotsman, uh, or Scotswoman, actually, named Jane McDougall, who opened it as Edinburgh Castle Pub. Now, this is something that's interesting because it's a physical event that happens in this bar. Mm -hmm. She claims that whenever she came into work every afternoon, she found that her stock of vodka would be measurably lower than when she closed the bar the night before. So she became convinced that no living person was responsible for this. She thought that it was the ghost of Frank Giff who was drinking this vodka at night. That was the only explanation she could come up with. She never once considered the cleaning man that comes in in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering, you know, or employees at night. Right. Or even they could, they might have even just evaporated. I mean, who knows? So when the uh, Edinburgh Castle became the old St. Andrew's Inn, there was still poltergeist activity there. Uh, patrons felt cold spots, and women in particular felt unseen hands touching their hair and shoulders. So kind of creepy. Okay, number five is Cigars and Stripes in Berwyn, Illinois. This one was a, a personal favorite of mine, one that I've been to before I even knew it was haunted. Now, Cigars and Stripes have been a longtime haunt for Berwyn beer and cigar aficionados. According to an article in the Berwyn and Cicero Gazette, several customers have seen a shadowy figure without arms or legs floating down the hallway uh, toward the door leading to the beer garden. That's stubby. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they do have a nickname for it. The owner of Cigars and Stripes has heard phantom footsteps on the basement stairs, and there's a ghost there named Rose, who they say is a former owner of the establishment, She's believed to linger one stop at the bar and plays a matchmaker. She's credited for bringing together at least one pair of newlyweds who met at that spot in the bar. So that's a positive ghost. Yeah, I've heard other stories about that place, too. That's supposed to be actually pretty legitimate. Oh, yeah, it's it's great, too. And, you know, it's it's it has very interesting decor, uh, great cigars. It's a great place. Of course, I recommend visiting all of these places. Well, that's because uh, you like bars. <laughs> <You> <laughs> well, it's might, a great place to get together. So with you might friend. even see Mike in each one of these, actually, because he <laughs> does research when he does this, you know. You have no idea how much time he spent in bars for this list. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, whatever I can do for our audience. <laughs> okay, number four is the Tonic Room in Chicago, Illinois. This one I'm not sure is still open. So maybe some of our listeners can go check it out. Now, ever since the Roaring Twenties, this building has had a colorful history that lends itself to tales of the paranormal. There was once a brothel located in the upstairs apartments, and the tavern was a popular hangout for a Northside Irish gang. When they first opened their establishment, the owners of the tonic room discovered Egyptian iconography painted on the basement ceiling and a pentagram painted on the floor. 
uh, leading to speculation that it had been a meeting place for an American chapter of the Golden Dawn, which was uh, Aleister Crowley's organization. Well, there was an elderly woman who claimed to have witnessed a ritual murder there in the 1930s when she accompanied her father to a secret meeting. So a lot of this information, uh, Ursula Bielski from Chicago was able to dredge up. So kind of kind of a really unnerving history there. Number three is Spirits Lounge in Alton, Illinois. In 2006, there were these two men, Gary and Tim. They purchased this old Masonic temple and planned to open it as a bar, restaurant, and banquet center. They made extensive renovations, knowing the building already had a reputation for being haunted. So, of course... As always, unusual occurrences happen almost immediately when it opened in 2007. The history of this building is really interesting. It was built around 1900, and it was known as the Piazza Lodge of the Freemasons, and they occupied the building for almost a century. Now, there's a local psychic there named Gary Hawkins, and he said that it's haunted by dozens of ghosts, including two master masons, a woman named Miss Smalley, who haunts the ladies' lounge, and two children. He also said there were four Confederate soldiers uh, who were victims of smallpox who haunt one of the former temple's two basements, which were remains of an older building that were there before the lodge was built. So there's a lot of layers of history. So there's quite a bit in that one. Oh, yeah. Well, number two is a very famous club in Chicago called the Excalibur Club. Yeah, I've been there myself, and it had some... Very unusual experiences. Well, this one, it's usually a perennial favorite around Halloween for local TV stations and things like that. It has kind of an unusual castle-like appearance. Uh, It was built in a a Romanesque revival style in 1892 by the Historical Society, and it's been home to a, a number of different things, the WPA, a technology institute, magazine company. So finally, it opened as a club called the Limelight. And its staff immediately noticed this unusual activity, especially on the third floor. Now there was a bunch of Is that of the balcony tables. floor? Is the third floor that balcony? I believe so. That's actually where I was when I was seeing, out of the corner of my eye, I kept seeing shadows. And that's before I knew the place was haunted. This was years ago. And then I found out since that people are seeing that too. So I actually saw that before I was told it was there. This was back in your clubbing days? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, on the pool table, uh, balls rolled around on their own. There was the sound of these heavy boxes moving, and when it opened as the Excalibur in 1990, the hauntings continued. There was a bartender who was reportedly trapped in the bathroom stall, and uh, on one visit, author Scott Marcus claimed to hear keys rattling and witnessed a figure that seemed to vanish behind a support column. That was Willie the janitor. So this is very interesting thing. Is it is that really his name, Willie the Janitor? No, it just sounds good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, okay. Let's run down the list. Ten to two. Uh, number ten is the Sober Duck or Brew House in Springfield, Illinois. Number nine was the Bucktown Pub in Chicago, Illinois. Number eight was Ethel's Party, also in Chicago. Number seven was the Dormitory in Peoria. Number six was Old St. Andrews Inn in Chicago. Number five was Cigars and Stripes in Berlin. Number four, The Tonic Room in Chicago. Number three, Spirits Lounge in Alton. Number two, The Excalibur Club, of course, also in Chicago. And the number one most haunted pub and bar in Illinois is, of course, the Red Lion Pub in Chicago, Illinois. Yes, that one's very well known. Been on many TV shows. 
This is described as the most haunted pub in Chicago, and it was an obligatory stop on any haunted tour of the Windy City. I know, is it closed right now, or has they have they opened it up finally? I heard it was closed for a while, but I, I don't know if it's open yet or not. Uh, someone told me that they were renovating and, and planning on reopening. That's always good. Renovation always gets the ghost going. <laughs> Yeah, well, the Red Lion is thought to be haunted by several phantoms, including a vibrant woman dressed in 1920s attire, a cowboy for some reason, a, cowboy. a bearded man, and even a mentally retarded girl named Sharon. So basically like the village people of ghosts haunts this place. I guess, my gosh. Where'd the cowboy come from? They, they were big in Chicago, you know. Yeah, well, it, talk about strange bar names. Apparently the bar was originally called Dirty Dan's. Oh, was it? Yeah. I don't like to say bar names. I, I just don't know where they come up with those things. Well, the more eclectic, the better. Yes, that's true. So that was the top 10 most haunted bars and pubs in Illinois, and I highly recommend everyone check those out. All in one evening. Yes. <laughs> Rent yourself a limousine and go to all 10. Well, there's no problem to to going and having a little pub crawl, a haunted pub crawl. That's true. Hey, Mike, I meant to ask you, did you see on uh, my Bachelor's Grove Facebook page that picture of a ghost I just posted the other day? I did not. Actually, on the Bachelor's Grove Facebook page and on my uh, main Bachelor's Grove paranormal website, which is bachelors-grove.com, I actually just posted a picture. It, I took it about four years ago, and it's in infrared, and I was just going through them. And there's a pretty is obvious this, ghost kneeling by a, a tombstone. Is and, this the photo with the red arrow in it? No, well, no, that's showing you the location. That the, oh, okay. the two previous ones are actually in infrared. There's there's someone kneeling there, and in the second shot, they're leaning forward. Those are oh, shots were wow. taken. They were taken two seconds apart because I take my uh, all my photos in pairs. That way, you can always you have something to look against if you see something. But I that's night and day. There's definitely something. Yes. You see it. Yeah, I'm looking at the photo right now, and that is amazing. Isn't that crazy? I, I, You know, I didn't see the kneeling person until I looked at the next photo because it clearly looks like, yeah, like you said, somebody's leaning forward. And somebody actually said that it looks like he's putting flowers on a grave. Well, you can't tell from that picture, but if you look at the color picture, that's why I posted it. There's a grave right in front of him. Huh, so behind the tree. Right to the left oh, of the see. tree, if you're looking at it, there's a grave right there. But, I mean, I had these for years. I literally got hundreds of thousands of photos and it's so hard to go through them all i still haven't gone through them all and the other day i started and the only reason i noticed this is because i take pictures in pairs so as you're going through them it's kind of like a slideshow and these two it just jumped right out at me because there was such a difference in the center of the picture between two pictures yeah you really are good at these ghost photos i know i got that knack i don't know how i <laughs> i do that i actually get some amazing photos but for our listeners who want to see it you can see it on our facebook page which is uh the bachelor's grove facebook page or my my website, which is bachelors-grove.com. Yeah, that, that photo really is amazing, John, and I encourage your listeners to go and check it out. Yes, yeah, so like I say, I always tell people to take photos in pairs, too, just for this reason, because uh, if I took a single photo of that, I would have never saw that, but because there's right, two, you have two to compare it to, it jumps right out at you. E either one of them, 
on their own just kind of looks like a dark blob. But when you look at them together, you know, it looks like something's moving. That's exactly what it was. I was scrolling through the photos quickly. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that jumped right out at me, literally. And I got close. I'm like, holy crap. And this, I've had this for four years and just now saw it. So you got anything else going on, Mike? Can you top my cool ghost picture? Well, I don't think this will top it, but (laughs) I do have some, something to, uh, to solicit from your listeners. If any are writers out there, there's an anthology I'm putting together that uh, I'm calling Hunting Ghosts, Thrilling Tales of Paranormal Investigation. Now, this is going to be an anthology of fictional short stories about paranormal investigation. So we're not looking for true stories or stories about like what happened to you on investigations. We're looking for fictional stories. Oh, so basically anything you see on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's no restriction on point of view, so it could be first person right. if you wanted, but it, it just it must fit this theme because this is it's pretty hot topic right now. So I'm looking for stories between four thousand and ten thousand words. And uh, where do they uh, send it to you? Where do they contact you? Well, you can look up on the Black Oak Media website, blackoakmedia.org. Over in the right-hand column, there's a little link that says Anthologies, and this is the only one up there. Uh, But also, if you want to uh, submit something, you can send it to my editor, my assistant editor, Buck Weiss, and his email address is Stanley... No, Buck Buck Weiss. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. You said Buckwheat. <laughs> well, his email address, I don't want to give it out on air, but his email address is in the guidelines on okay. the website. Everyone, you have to use your psychic powers to get the email address from <laughs> Mike's head. <laughs> it's They're kind of a loose based show today, everybody. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's fun. People like hearing that. Yes. So, you got anything else for us, Mike? That is about it. Um, so, like I said, you know, use your imagination, come up with something really great. And remember, fiction is not like real life. So on a ghost hunt, you don't have to spend... Don't don't send me a story describing five hours of looking at videotape, please. Yes. I mean, have something exciting happen. Well, if you can make it up, it, it's got to be exciting, my gosh. If you can't make up something exciting, your life is sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm looking forward to seeing what people come up with. Okay, Mike. Well, we'll talk to you again next week. Oh, great. Talk to you then. Okay, take care. All right. That was Michael Clean. We'll be right back and listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Welcome back. With us right now on the phone is Suzanne Taylor and uh, another installment of Outside the Box. How are you doing today? Oh, just fine. Thinking about all these trippy things we talk about, which I love talking about. So we have to tell everybody I'm the crop circle queen to begin with. That crop circle, I don't know when that was, last year, the year before, whatever, the one that had the binary code or whatever in it. Was that ever decoded? Did they ever figure out what that said? Now, which uh, there have been several of them with binary codes. I think codes. it's that so one you, that had the picture of like the alien face in it too, or something, wasn't it? 
Yes, that was the only time we ever saw that typical gray uh, outpictured in wheat. <laughs> right. And, it, and, and there was a disk there that they translated that into binary code, and that's, you know, become famous in crop circle lore, uh, which is a, I don't remember the exact words, but it's a bit of a warning that it is a warning. Watch out. Be careful. Well, they uh, you did. still have time, you know. It's a nuclear warning, isn't it? I've heard, you know, that they're, they're afraid we're going to blow up our beautiful planet here. They don't get specific about that. And the times that we've gotten messages that we can translate specifically, the warnings are general, uh, which we can easily interpret to mean that we are very destructive, very violent with one another, and we threaten to destroy human life. So the warnings are just watch out, wake up, get your act together. <laughs> they yeah. don't say that, but, and it's actually kind of funny in, in, when you look at this reel, you know, you look at pictures or if you're in the formations themselves, all these little squiggles, you know, the wheat is down, the wheat is up. And I think the binary codes have all been in wheat, although we've got many, many different vegetable crops that crop circles show up in. Yeah. But... Uh, the, the, so, so you see this little squiggly stuff going on, down, up, down, up, down, up. And, you know, if it were up to me in a million years, I wouldn't know that it said anything. But fortunately, we have wise people from many different disciplines who pay attention to the formations as they come in and then tell you from whatever their body of smarts is things that you wouldn't know. And so there was binary code. I'm trying to remember when the first one was where was that there was a prior one that was very famous which i can't really remember this one came in i believe it's you know it wasn't uh in exactly yesterday i think it was 2002 <laughs> the one you're talking right. about came i know that one you still see everywhere you go though that's a very right, popular image <laughs> Right, it is popular because of all the elements. You know, there's another element they don't even talk about, which I find rather fascinating about that one, which is that the way it's made, having nothing to do with the message, but the way it's made is all ver uh, horizontal line. It's the way television is constructed. I don't know what the oh, word really? is. Yeah, you know, in newsprint, it's dot matrix. Correct. If you magnify newsprint it's all little dots and obviously you don't see the dots when it's consolidated and shrunk down and whatever well if you blow up the television uh, what, what do we call it the television uh, methodology like, right you notice it's all horizontal line well that particular formation is all horizontal line uh, is it is it in the binary code part or is it just in the alien face part? I'm not sure about that. Whatever it is, it's very unusual and very obviously intentional that it mirror, because these crop circle mirror things on Earth here. Right. And my conjecture is, because we have to, you know, speculate. We don't know why they do what they do. But my conjecture is that they just keep showing us how clever they are or how capable they are of mirroring back to us what we are, what we do. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, again, my conjecture is that they do that to let us know that they read us. And mm -hmm. that lets us know that there's other intelligence that's not us. 
And that, to me, is the whole point, or my belief is, that that's the whole point of the crop circle phenomenon that's mirroring back to us the fact that other intelligence is out there making contact with us, and they don't land on the White House lawn because it would freak us out, whereby this progression of year after year, intelligence beamed at us, beamed at us, beamed at us, until finally people wake up and go, whoa, there's something going on. And it's a slow process whereby, you know, you've seen lots of crop circles and finally you say, holy Christmas, this is for real. And then you got it. You own it. You got it because you figured it out or because it impressed itself upon you. Slowly, progression of time, it's gentle, and it expands you, it teaches you. So picture the contrast of some, because people say, well, if they wanted to tell us something and they're so smart, why don't they just, whatever, you know, fast, (laughs) land on the White House lawn, that's your analogy always. It's a UFO analogy, but it would certainly work for crop circles, wouldn't it, since we're talking about lawns. And I think that the reason is that would be, disruptive to us it would be scary to us it would be no, we um, would shoot at them if they landed on the white house lawn our first thing would do would be try to blow them up that, yeah. exactly no no fooling that is just what we would do whereas this way we're realizing something it's very gentle it's very enlightened if you will about drawing something out of us rather than hitting us over the head and you know impressing something into us. You know, another thing, actually, why we're on crop circles, before we get to your subject for the day. Because underneath it all, I got this movie, you know, so I'm so eager for people to see it because it changes people's minds, and that's why I made it. So we we don't want to overlook my little commercial here. People yell at me, you're just selling a movie. Well, yeah, you know, (laughs) whatever appearance you make, just like on... TV talk shows, the stars go on when they have a movie. Exactly. Oh, you're selling your movie. Yeah, right. But hopefully we're giving the audience something they're going to enjoy and be inspired by or entertained by, you know? Well, actually, it's the yeah, way the world you, works. So you love the crap circles, obviously, or you wouldn't have made the movie. I mean, a little common sense there. Of course you like that stuff and you want to talk about it. But particularly people think, oh, you're so commercial when you do these whatever you do. And they... Now, they say that of all people who try to plug anything, but yeah, that's the world we live in. Come on. Oh, exactly. The, the time the movie stars go on the talk shows is when they have a new movie. They don't go on when they have nothing. So give us a break. Yeah, I've actually <laughs> okay. had that too when I'll call guests to be on the show. They're like, well, not now, but I got a new book coming out in six months. I'll do it then. So, so But I, it's true. It's I, true. Right. You, you, yeah, you spe- you put your energy where you know you're, and and you're not hurting anybody that way, or cheating anybody, or fooling anybody. You're just supporting your reality, which is the way we we would do it in the world. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Anyway, you get accused a lot of you know. <laughs> oh, you should be doing that. Well, no, that's not right. Oh, I agree. I get that a lot, you know, because I go on these forums or. I get something in my email that's just an absolute lie about the circles, and I swallow hard, and I go where the lie came from, and I tell the truth, and then they attack me. Yeah. Oh, you're just trying to sell the movie. <laughs> oh, oh. I've just been in one of those. So That's the way the uh, internet works, too. There's always people attacking Part of my people. week this week was in one of those, trying to clean up some information that was out there, and oh, my gosh, you make yourself such a subject for attack that way. What I was going to ask you before we leave the crop yes, circle subject. before we talk about what we're talking about, yes. Those big crop circles, you know, they appear in the fields. 
okay, down the line, like a year later, do those fields grow normally or is there something, you know, are they, is, are they been altered where they don't grow anymore? Well, there's sometimes an, an effect afterwards and it's radically misunderstood as something uh, otherworldly, paranormal, whereby when the next crop comes in, sometimes you see a ghost mm-hmm. of the previous year's formation there and people got early on, you know, it was like, very excited that that meant yet another element of woo-woo, or I shouldn't say woo-woo as if it's <laughs> bad, but you know what I mean. Another right. another uh, mysterious element that they were excited about because the more mysterious elements, the more you know believable. If it's real mystery, it's like, well, we don't do that. Well, that's not the fact with those ghost images. What the farmer explained to me, the farmer that I have in my movie, uh, who gets the best formations in his fields he explained to me that what happens is that people walk in the formations and they grind the uh, seeds from the downed crop into the ground Uh uh-oh i must have do not disturb wait a minute do not disturb i have my answering machine on okay so anyway so the farmer explained to me that people walking in it grind those seeds from the crop that's down into the soil and then the slugs love that so the slugs come and they live in in the pattern in where the seeds are where the seeds are down and so then they plant the next year's crop and the slugs eat those seeds because they got slugs now Mm. (laughs) and that's what prevents the crop from growing in that second season and gives you your ghost image of the first one okay so there you go Perfect answer. Okay, now what are we uh, talking about today? Oh, what are we talking about? Okay, so I want to talk about reincarnation, but I want to tell you a particular slant on it or a story about it that probably nobody knows anything about. If we are paying attention in the world, we know there are some pretty astonishing reincarnation, um, inexplicable situations. There's a guy named Ian Stevenson who is probably the most famous researcher, what have you. I used to see him in England uh, at Crop Circle, at a Crop Circle conference, the big yearly conference, where they didn't only have Crop Circle stuff. They had other stuff, like your show, John, with other paranormal kind of topics. And he he would uh, do talks. And, boy, those were fascinating. You know, some little kid tells you some story with a phone number or an address and some American kid gives you a story about Germany or something and they go over there and they discover, yeah, there's a real place and then they discover who died there and it looks like the kid and, you know, amazing, amazing stories. There's there's bodies of work like that. But that's not what I'm going to tell you about. I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't know too much about and it's something called, it has an acronym And the acronym is C-O-R-T. And what C-O-R-T stands for is, I'm trying to find it here in this piece. Um, Where is C-O-R-T? Come on. Maybe I'll have to come back and find the particular thing. But I'll tell you the story of it later. The the first thing I want to tell you is where I got this story. Because... I got it from a very reliable source, and your listeners should know about that as well. I belong to an organization called the, it's a a very bizarre name. It got named years ago. It's been in existence for decades now. Uh, It's mostly in Europe. It comes out of England, and most of the members are in Europe. And the members are 
people like us, but they've got academic credentials, professors, scientists, what have you, who are working in the real world, but they also are open to these very non-scientific materialism kind of, or non, um, what do they call it, uh, what do they call science that's, oh, this is terrible, I should have that word that, not scientism, I, yeah, well, scientism is as good a word as any, where science has become our god, and if you can't put it under a microscope and do scientific protocol on it, it doesn't exist, so then consciousness is marginalized, things that, you know, are there, but can't be subject to science. And then the, these, the scientific protocols, such as we, 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 we do them, but this organization is about all the people who believe outside the box. You know, mm -hmm. that my segment's called Outside the Box. So these are real science people, real professors, real educators, mainstream. They're working. They're not marginalized. But they also are open to all these other things. And so it's called the scientific – everybody should look it up. It's the Scientific and Medical Network. Strange name. I don't know why medical got in there. <laughs> but that's the name of it. The uh, URL is scifimed.org, but if you search for the Scientific and Medical Network, you'll get it. And this, they do a journal three times a year. I get a lot of things to read. I don't really, f I can't possibly read them all. I read this one cover to cover. It's, it's got a lot in it. Uh, sometimes I'm not even finished with one when the next one comes three times a year, but it is so fascinating that, uh, and reliable, you know, as I say, these are very academically credentialed kind of people writing there. And I'm telling you that because that's where I picked up this piece. And I actually did a post on my blog about it. If you go to my blog, theconversation.org, you can read all the details. If type in reincarnation into the search and there will be the top thing that comes up, and then you can read the whole long piece that obviously I'm not going to read to you uh, of this what this woman wrote. And the woman is this person who has this reincarnation story to tell. So I'll just read you back. I'll go back to the Scientific Medical Network just so that you get the um, kind of foundation of it. Founded in '73 an interdisciplinary networking forum and educational charity exploring science, medicine, philosophy, and spirituality. And it hosts conferences and dialogues and talks in the UK and Europe. So it has American members, but it has no activity in America. And uh, it asks searching questions about the nature of life and the role of the human being, open-minded, rigorous thinking, and care for others at all times. I mean, it's got all the right principles. Uh, it encourages intellectual discernment and is wary of the ill-founded and sensational claims of pseudoscience. Well, so, you know, it's not going to buy any old wacko story. So now we're on to the story that they actually posted here by a woman named Sue Randall, and she's an English woman. And she has this extraordinary experience. Oh, here it is. It's something she she is what would we say afflicted with or or party to this thing called CORT as the acronym cases of the reincarnation type and that's that's what this is called and but this is a particular kind of 
story that isn't like Ian Stevenson. It isn't a story where somebody comes up with something and you check back and indeed they are the reincarnation or they appear to be the reincarnation of something uh, prior to that a person or what have you. This is, a sl- this is a different angle on it. So this woman has a condition. It isn't a condition that is exclusive to her affliction, if that's what we're going to call it. I, I don't quite know what to call it, her situation. Uh, but it is a condition in, in the medical world, and it's called, this is a weird name, you can't even, it doesn't even have a name, it's initials. It's called ME slash CFS1. <laughs> I don't know what, why they named it that. It's a strange but name whatever, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> It leaves the sufferer so fatigued as to be literally crippled at times. So she, since a child, has had this extraordinary fatigue that couldn't, where did it come from? Who knew, you know, Mm -hmm. no way to explain it. And as life progressed for her, it became more and more debilitating. And then they were treating her. And they treated her, what's wrong with her? Well, they treated her with psychology, psychiatry except that wasn't the source of her problem and being treated with the wrong, trying to figure out what's wrong with her in her, you know, misguided uh, childhood trauma, whatever, whatever it is. They were barking up the wrong tree and she was getting worse and worse until she became rather psychotic. She was actually hospitalized. So, but then what was going on? What was going on in her life and why was she so exhausted? Uh, Well, she was having past life memories and the memories and they were like dreams memories of being from the holocaust now we're going to say a few other things she's not jewish her family is not jewish but she has these memories of being in the holocaust and she says as a young child i was confused by trying to sort out what was real versus what was inside my head and she couldn't talk to any adults about it because they didn't know what she was talking about. And she said, by the time I was 17, I had gone from being a straight-A gifted student to an underachieving suicidal wreck. And she actually overdosed a couple of times, hospitalized for depression, and put into psychotherapy. Well, it turns out, wait a minute, her situation is that she was having real reincarnation experiences, memories of being in the Holocaust. Don't ask why. Who knows? But that's what it was. So she says as a child, uh, she started to fall asleep. Terrifying but invisible thing would sneak around the edges of my mind, startle me awake. And so she was, you know, she would wake up until finally she had one night feeling I could no longer avoid it. I let the memory flood back in all its horror. And it was a memory of being in the gas chamber. And she said, the next morning I awoke with crystal clear awareness. I knew I'd been an adult and had died in the gas chamber, lost my family, living with a family of strangers who didn't know who I was, but would not believe me if I told them this is her current life. Mm-hmm. And then I first experienced crippling fatigue. Now, Partly was the trauma of the memory, and partly was that she couldn't talk to anyone. So she's stuck in this bubble of horror. And so then 
she had very strange experiences. Like her family would try to take her places on a Saturday. There was some particular thing on a Saturday. And it, it annoyed her that she had to do this on a Saturday. Well, the Saturday is the Jewish day of rest. You're not supposed to do anything on a Saturday. Mm. So, you know, all of this confusion in her life that she didn't know why these things were there and she's getting worse and worse and sicker and sicker. And she says, in high school, my exhaustion and depression became more profound till I had a total nervous breakdown at the age of 17. Now, what happened? Well, she ended up in a Buddhist monastery. And she, just as a respite, as somewhere, you know, to, to go to, to just heal, deal with herself. And she says, for almost 20 years, I could not accept the past life interpretation myself. I accepted the idea whatever difficulties I was having were psychi psychiatric rather than spiritual in nature. So, and that's what modern Western psychology says. Uh, they don't recognize that there's anything about past life stuff. It's all about brains and social conditioning. And so, <laughs> you're, nothing's supposed to come into another lifetime. Right. And so... She was in therapy and she was studying psychology and she says it took 20 odd years for me to realize that psychology was taking me nowhere. My life had fallen apart. I'd become seriously ill. So, the, so she ended up living in a Buddhist monastery for six years where exposure to beliefs about rebirth seeped into my consciousness and finally began my healing process. Not that the Buddhists are totally into it either. Even among Western Buddhists, there's a lot of skepticism about reincarnation. So as she accepted this herself and accepted the fact that this is what it was going on, she, was re she, she had reincarnated from someone who died in, a, in the gas chamber in the Holocaust, and she's now okay. Uh, she says, in recent years, I've linked up with many people with Holocaust past life memories. Apparently, you know, she's not the only one, which is why this is somewhat interesting to talk about, because... What she's on the soapbox for is diagnosis, better diagnosis, that no one should have to go through what she went through. There's other conditions from this repression of a situation that can't be dealt with. There's, she says there's high levels of health problems among us, people like us, severe conditions like cancer and depression, plus this MECFCS, which is uh, this extreme fatigue, and one we've all heard about, fibromyalgia. <laughs> they sell something on television that cures your fibromyalgia, some yeah. drug of, of anything. But none of that, for, for, for all of us, healing is inextric inextricably bound up with coming to terms with our memories. So that's what she's advocating. And she's saying that the you've just got to get this understanding into mainstream psychology. So she says the next generation of psychologists is being raised without any appreciation of the difference between, for example, the kinds of things that we suffer from, from childhood abuse, you know, the real things that psychology needs to deal with and is good for, you know, that's, that's the way we deal with these kind of things, but that we need to distinguish between that. And she says the shaky sense of identity, which results from having vivid memories of being someone else in a previous life, while also being fully aware of who one is today. 
So she says we've got to educate therapists, teachers, ministers, rabbis, doctors, psychiatrists about court, the situation of whatever it was I said court was. What was it? Childhood? No, no, whatever. Excellent. Oh, I got to go back okay. to read it again. <laughs> uh, so, but how will parents ever recognize and accept a child who's dealing with this? So the way we do it is the academic world has a responsibility. They can't be just ignore these things with, that are going on with people because people, you know, are really radically impaired by these things. And she says enough research has been done to show that CORT is a genuine, if rare, phenomenon. It needs further study maybe needs a new diagnostic category. You know, they don't even have it set up that it exists in the world of things that need paying attention to or yeah, treating. It doesn't fit in the normal box, so to speak, scientists. They, everything has to be one particular thing for them. Any variation whatsoever, and doctors and scientists completely would ignore it. Well, this is, I guess, a small enough category that they don't get a lot of pressure to do anything about it. There aren't that many sufferers, but the truth is there are some and those people really need to be handled you know you hear all the time people all kinds of rare ailments and it takes them 20 years to get diagnosed and or they die without proper diagnosis so all of this is to educate us and make us smarter and that you know i don't think this is a subject that would be marginalized so much as some things are like crop circles if People just become aware of it. The world needs, and she's on a you know a campaign to make the academic world accept the existence of court uh, and the fact that such cases, as she ends the article, show a fairly predictable pattern. And once the academic world accepts the existence of this, for which there's lots of you know examples now, right. we can focus on developing a more coherent theory. So this is a woman with three degrees. She has a master's in research psychology. Uh, that's why she's member of this organization and in this very credible forum here for where we learn all sorts of things about going things going on in the world that are outside the box. Yeah. This is a perfect organization for that. It's, I mean, that story is actually amazing. I've heard of reincarnation before numerous times, and I've heard people having nightmares about that, but nothing to the extent like this. I mean, this sounds like you're living your nightmare twice, actually, bad enough you're in the concentration camp, but you're doing it again in your second life. Right, right. And and because it can't be, wasn't able to be in her uh, life pattern, there was no framework for it. There was no understanding of it. There's cases of the reincarnation type um, that the ed education is what needs to happen now and you know god, god bless this organization that brings out so many things in a credible forum you know you got a lot of stuff online that's nobody would give any credence to it's too far outside the box or right. whatever but this is such a credible organization that i'm so grateful to it uh... for all the fascinating things i learn about the world but also the influence that it can bring to bear on the real world where we need to change things you know we can't keep these outdated kinds of uh, methods of analysis and acceptance of what is real being so narrowly defined there's so much in our world that we are handling badly and we need to really 
rethink our worldview so that we're not so violent with one another, destructive to the planet. It's our worldview that's keeping all that in place where scientific materialism holds sway and all these things that open our minds to a bigger worldview, things that are real but not don't fall into the parameters of this narrow construct in which we're living are the things that will save our lives as humanity, you know. Like I always talk about the circles, once we accept the fact that we're not making all of them and we know there's another intelligence engaging with us, it's going to change the world if we ever get to that place. Yeah. Everybody's mind is going to be changed, and that's what we really need. We, we handle all our problems piecemeal, you know, all the threats to our survival and well-being and whatever, global warming and depletion of oil, you know, we pay attention to all these things. What shall we do about that? Well, we've got to change the fundamental belief system that's holding all these things in place or else we're just fingers in the dike trying to chip away at the stuff that is so threatening, you know, to our very survival now that we've gotten so technologically proficient and, you know, can, can destroy ourselves which, you know, cave caveman days, we couldn't have done that. All we could do would be create some local trouble. Yeah, <laughs> but well, now nowadays we, we have it, the technology to blow the planet up, but we're still exactly. as smart as we were back in the caveman days is the issue. We're still a stupid, you know, warring tribe, basically. <laughs> but but we have... Well, there, that are, there is that huge disparity between how good we've gotten technologically and that we haven't uh, comparably amped up our understanding and our our conscious nature or spiritual nature right. you know all of that is marginalized with this wonderful uh, advocacy or belief or 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 worship of technology which is great we do not want to throw technology out but it can't be the only game in town or else we won't have a game at all so i don't know it looks like we might not have a game at all the way the world's going now unless it straightens up really quick Signs are well, getting come on, John. Worse. We got We got to get on this. We we got to work hard here. Yeah, because things are looking worse and worse by the day. My gosh, if you watch the news, it, when's the last time you watched the news and there is a good story on? There, there just isn't. Everything is always a war here, a war here, or some just crap happening in the entire world. You know, I know friends of mine who don't uh, have their TV plugged in. You know, they use it for watching DVDs. Seriously. They just don't want to be uh, in that operating system. And I said, oh, my gosh, how can you turn your back on, you know, it's it's your, it's your our survival going, well, whatever, you know. That's that ostrich they, they, syndrome, you know, you stick your head in the sand, you can't see it, it's all fine. Well, no, not that it's fine. It's just that you then you get to lead a life. I, I mean, I often wonder, you know, maybe, maybe I don't know, I, I can't help it. I mean, uh, you know, I got born with this compulsion to make things better but in some ways i'm jealous of my friends who turn their some of my friends who turn their back on it all and just concentrate on love and uh positive things in their own life and creativity and what have you i don't know the pull of the world is too strong for me but i understand why other people handle that differently and i and i have no criticism of them for it you know yeah, more power to them if they can do that, because that sounds like a great idea. So that's you get about, to see me. That's about all we got for today, then. That was actually a good segment. We covered quite a bit there. It was rather interesting. Okay, until we meet again, John, thank you very much. Thanks for the forum. I really enjoy it. No problem. We'll talk to you again later.
All right, that was Suzanne Taylor. We'll be back next week with a brand new Threshold Radio on ufo-info.com or Friday nights 10 to 11 on theedgeonair.com. See you next weekend.